We're in Hebrews chapter 5, getting ready to go into chapter 6. And there's something here that I, I want you all to be aware of. This is a very serious warning that the author of Hebrews gives to the folks he was writing to, and obviously, because it's included in the canon scripture, it's given to us as well. We have the same problem, those Hebrews did, that he's writing this letter to. Now, just to bring you up to speed and kind of give you the background here, he's been talking about the apostle and high priest of our confession. Who he's talking about, obviously, is Jesus. And he's talking about the one we say we trust. We've all trusted in Jesus as our personal Savior. He's talking about Jesus as a high priest. Now, obviously, to the Jews in his audience, which was primarily who he was writing to initially, they were in need of a high priest because they had left the Jewish religion and actually believed that Jesus was who he said he was, their Messiah. They actually believed that. Now, that was a big, big step for those early early Christians. We Gentiles, we don't really appreciate that fully. But what that meant was they had to turn their back on everything they'd been raised up to believe and recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Now, that would have been pretty easy had Jesus fulfilled their normal expectations of what the Messiah would do. That would have been pretty easy had Jesus rode on that donkey into Jerusalem on the day or week before he was crucified, and had he marched into the temple and not just cleansed the temple, but had at that moment set up his kingdom on earth. That means he would have destroyed the Roman rule. He would have taken over the world. And he would have reigned as King of kings and Lord of lords. Right then and there. See, that's what the Jews were expecting the Messiah to do. In fact, his own disciples, which you realize were all Jews, they kept asking him, Lord, when are you going to set your kingdom up? Are you going to do it now? Are you going to do it now? They didn't understand God's economy. They didn't understand His plan was to set His kingdom up at a later time for which we Gentiles need to be eternally grateful because it gave us time actually the last 2,000 years to come to faith in Jesus. They didn't understand that. And so those who initially believed that Jesus was the Messiah got confused. Especially when they saw Him beaten, rejected, hung on the cross, crucified. They got confused. They said, oh man, we're trusting the wrong guy here. I thought He was the Messiah. Not only did they get confused, they got discouraged. 
Now on the third day, when Jesus rose again from the dead, He shook Jerusalem. Did you know that? Yeah. When He came up from the grave, there was an earthquake that shook the city. And not only that, the graves were opened. And people who had died and were buried came alive. I don't know how many. We're not told how many, but there were many of them. So all of Jerusalem knew, hey, something big just happened. That gave those people who were questioning their faith in Jesus as the Messiah a little bit of hope. Maybe it's not over. Then when Jesus appeared to His own disciples, and later in Galilee to over 500 disciples, He was here on this earth for 40 days. People began to say, uh, we didn't lose it. No. We believed. We believed that He was the Messiah and He was in fact the Messiah. Now they didn't understand what He was really up to at that time. They just understood that He was the Messiah and they told other people. Now most of the people that our author here is writing to in Hebrews were people that believed that Jesus was the Messiah based on the testimony of others who actually saw Him raised from the dead. So they were like us. You haven't seen Jesus raised from the dead. You haven't seen His resurrection body. Yet you believe that He is who He said He was. And so these Hebrews believed that. But it still costs them. You see, their faith in Jesus as the Messiah meant for most of them they would lose their source of income. They'd lose their job if they actually spoke it openly. They were kicked out of their religious affiliations, the synagogue. They couldn't go into the temple. If they believed that Jesus was the Messiah and they were open about that, they suffered tremendous persecution. You remember the story about Saul of Tarsus? The Pharisee of Pharisee before he became the Apostle Paul? Remember how he went from house to house searching out these people that believed that Jesus was the Messiah? And when he found them, he beat them, threw them in prison, and was responsible for their death. So these Hebrews faced some serious persecution. Tough persecution. A lot of suffering. For that reason, the writer takes us to Jesus as the high priest. And he's actually encouraged both them and us to come boldly before the throne of grace where Jesus, your high priest, is seated to find mercy and grace to help you in time of need, to help you through this suffering, to help you through the problems you're encountering. Now, at that point, he kind of gives us the greatest description of Jesus as a high priest that anyone could give. He called him 
a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now I understand that doesn't mean much to most people. Because most people don't have a clue about Melchizedek. They know he's some kind of a shadowy figure back there in Genesis and met Abraham and blessed him. And Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. But they don't know really much about him. Our author is going to describe more about him as we go on in this letter. But for our understanding, so you can get kind of to the punchline, being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek is the highest position as a priest you can have. It superseded the high priests that the Jews were used to. You see, in the Jewish tradition and Judaism, if you wanted to know about God, if you wanted to have any kind of relationship with God, you do it through the high priest. It was the high priest and his associates that received your sacrifice for sins. And it was the high priest who pronounced God's blessings on you. So he was a go-between. Between you and God. When Jesus came on the scene, He became the high priest. Now, I'm going to share this with you. I don't have any scriptural backing for this whatsoever. It's just the insight I think the Lord gave me because He kept repeating me over to repeating it to me over and over. You remember when Jesus was a little guy and He was growing up in Nazareth? Remember his parents took him along with their whole clan up to Jerusalem to worship at that annual feast? And remember when they left Jerusalem to go back, they couldn't find Jesus anywhere. He was 12 years old and he was running around hanging out with his buddies, which was normal. They traveled in caravans. And so not being able to find Jesus wasn't really a big deal. They said, well, he'll show up. You know, he's out playing with John the Baptist, his cousin, or whoever. But after a day or so, they couldn't find him anywhere, and they began to get worried. And so they went back to Jerusalem searching for Jesus, their 12-year-old son. Finally, they found him, of all places, in the temple. And what was he doing in the temple? He was discussing the scriptures with the leaders of the temple, the smart guys, the professors, the teachers. His mom burst into the scene and said, Jesus, don't you know we've been looking for you? Your father and I have wondered where you were. We've been worried about you. It's kind of like, you know, when you lose your kid in a department store somewhere. You are so terrified and scared to death until you finally find them and then you want to kill them, right? (laughs) Where have you been? His answer was, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? At 12 years old, Jesus knew who his heavenly father was. 
At 12 years old, he knew he had work to do. And it just hit me right at that point. You know what I think he was discussing with those learned men in the temple? You know what I think he was, was really talking about? Again, I can't prove this. And I will wait till the helicopter goes over. That's, that's such a freaky sound to me every time I hear a helicopter. I think he was actually talking about and actually put to them the question, who was Melchizedek? Who was this mysterious person that blessed Abraham? Who was this guy? And I think the reason he put that question to them, even as a 12-year-old, and was discussing with them because he knew even then that he himself was the ultimate Melchizedek. He himself was a total fulfillment and embodiment of the high priest of God. Melchizedek. This is what our author's writing about now. He's writing about Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to take the time to go back into what we talked about before, about Melchizedek being a high priest of God, which started way before Moses, actually all the way back to Adam, who was the priest, the high priest for humanity, passed down to various patriarchs, to Melchizedek that we read about in Genesis, blessing Abraham, to Abraham himself, all the way down through Moses, all the way down to Christ. He was the priest of the Most High God. You see, God has always had that priest in operation in humanity. Priest of the Most High God. What's a priest's job? To take from God and give it to man. To take from man and give it to God. He's always had that. Now, the significance of that to us is that Jesus fulfills that role as the priest of the Most High God. He's not the priest like Aaron was. He's not the priest after the Levitical priesthood that was established by law. He is the priest of the Most High God after the order of Melchizedek. And as I shared with you last week, the difference between those two is night and day. The Levitical priesthood was a priesthood established by law. The priest of the Most High God, the Melchizedek priesthood, is a priesthood established by grace. And so what our author is describing for us here is two radically different ways to live your life. Under the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, you live your life under the law according to a list of rules and regulations. Always condemning yourself. Always worried that you haven't done enough. Always concerned that your sins are going to find you out. Living a life under the priest of the Most High God and after the order of Melchizedek is living a life of grace in which you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you 
have become one with Jesus. That you and He are the same. Now, our author here says, i got a lot to tell you about that. There's a lot of stuff I want you to know about Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek and what that means to you. But I really can't get into it right now. Why? Look at the verses in, in verse 5, or chapter 5, the closing verses. He says in verse 11, of whom we have many things to say, that's concerning Melchizedek, and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What was the problem he was facing here? Immature believers. Babies. Baby believers. Oh yeah, they were believers. Mm-hmm. They trusted that Jesus was the Messiah. In the case of the Hebrews. Just like many people today trust that Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross for their sins. And they become believers. They're children of God. But they're babies. You see, being born again being, quote, saved is not an end in itself. It's just the beginning. You are born again of the Spirit to a brand new life that you need to grow up in. And so actually, the title of this message today is time to grow up. It's time. It's time for believers to grow up. Quit being babes. Now this is not the only place. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, who more than likely wrote this too, also challenged the Corinthian church. In his first general letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 3, He said, I couldn't talk to you as spiritual, but as carnal. What do you mean as spiritual? To those who are full grown, led by the Spirit. He said, I've had to talk to you as natural, even as babes. I couldn't give you the meat of the Word. You had to have the milk of the Word. And you still have to have the milk of the Word. Now, what's the milk of the Word? Peter tells us to desire the sincere milk of the Word that you can grow up in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the milk of the Word. But what is that milk? When you look at the Bible, the Word of God, you can divide it between the meat and the milk. The milk 
of the Word, of what God has revealed to us, is everything God said He's done to make you a brand new person in Christ. Everything. And believe me, there's a bunch. I was just talking to Tom a moment ago about his message in the Cowboy Church this morning. He said he's stuck in Ephesians here. Ephesians, the first chapter. And what are you stuck on, Tom? Well, he's rehearsed all the spiritual blessings that we've been blessed with as the children of God. And he realized that when you realize, when before you can go on, you have to turn the corner and realize the meat of the Word. See, the milk of the Word is everything God has done for you you couldn't do for yourself. The milk of the Word is God telling you, you are secure in My love, you are significant in My plan. God telling you that you are justified, you are declared righteous, you are just like My Son Jesus. God telling you and you hearing that you are His beloved child in whom He is well pleased. That's the milk of the Word. Probably one of the greatest doses of milk into the Word that you'll ever find is right there in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 where God tells you you are dead to sin. You are dead to the law and alive in Christ. He tells you in no uncertain terms, you're okay. You don't have anything to worry about. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. There is no reason for you to freak out over anything. That's the milk of the Word. What's the meat of the Word then? What's this strong food that he's talking about? It's everything that God says in His Word that He is going to do through you, that new person He's made you to be, for others. Have you ever wondered why you're still here? Hmm? The older I get, the more I wonder it. Why are you still here? Why are you here to begin with? Now looking at it spiritually, let's just think about it logically. You trusted Jesus as your personal Savior. And you were born of the Spirit. You became this new person. Radically changed inside. And, add to that, God knows what He's got planned for you. Jesus has already prepared a place for you in heaven. He knows that where you're going is a whole bunch better than Okeechobee. He knows that He's got a house prepared for you. He's got a life prepared for you of glory. Then why? Why has He left you here? In this sin-cursed world that's falling apart at the seams, 
And these sin-cursed bodies that are growing old and falling apart. Why? Why has He left you here in the midst of all this suffering? Why didn't He just take you on home? Give you that new body that's prepared already in heaven reserved for you. Why didn't He just take you on home? Get you out of all this mess? Why? Why has God left you here? God has left you in this world that's falling apart at the seams. That is agonizing, groaning in pain until now. He left you here in this world, in these sin-cursed bodies, for exactly the same reason He sent His Son Jesus into this world. You have exactly the same mission as Jesus. To seek and to save that which is lost. To love others just like Christ. You see, that's what the meat of the Word is about. Now here's the problem. Paul recognized it in Romans 8 when he gave us that tremendous statement of the milk of the Word. Romans 6 and 7 and 8. About halfway through chapter 8, he says, we are joint heirs with Christ. And man, we're on a road. We've got all the provisions of His Spirit. We're on a road. He says, you're joint heirs with Christ if so be that you suffer with Him. What do you mean, suffer? I'm not into this business. Right? I don't mind being joined to Christ. Being a joint heir with Him. Believing that He is the Messiah. But what's this business about suffering with Him that we may also be glorified together with? I don't care about the suffering business. You see, when I trusted Jesus, I thought it was to get out of suffering. Oh no. You are going to suffer with him for the same reason he suffered. I see this all the time in Christian circles. I get this idea that somehow, magically, you, as a believer, as a Christian, are going to be able to avoid suffering. Oh yeah. They get this magical idea that then they play this game with God and make a deal with Him. Sounds something like this. Alright God. I am going to do my level best to behave myself. I'm going to do all these various things. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to tithe my money. I'm going to serve on committees. I'm going to sing in the choir. I'm going to do all these religious things. And you, God, you don't let anything bad happen to me or people I love, okay? God doesn't make that deal. And so when later their kid runs off on drugs, 
the doctor says you've got cancer or they lose their job they can't understand why why did this happen God I made this deal with you what's up with that I kept my part I even went to church and pretended I enjoyed it but you've let me down God you have let me down. You see, God never did make that deal with anyone. Can you think of anybody that was more obedient to God than Jesus? Hmm? You can't find anybody that was more obedient to God than Jesus, but neither can you find anyone who suffered more than Jesus? What Jesus learned through the things He suffered was obedience. The meat of the Word. You see, these Hebrews were suffering terribly. Like many of us. They were suffering in all kinds of ways. And they fell prey to the one thing that will cause you to doubt the Gospel being true more than anything else. And that's your own personal suffering. When things don't go right. When you suffer. It causes you to doubt the Gospel. And that's why Paul took closed out that milk section in Romans 8 with an entire half chapter explaining suffering and explaining to you that you are more than conquerors and that your suffering in no wise indicates that you're a loser even though you look like a loser. See, Jesus looked like a loser when He was hanging on a cross, didn't He? Yeah, He looked like He was losing big time. And they peeled Him off that cross and put Him in that tomb. Everybody thought, He lost. It's over. It's done. But Jesus wasn't a loser. And the third day, when He rose again from the dead, He proved it. You're not a loser. Never have been, never will be, never can be a loser. Regardless of the suffering you face, you cannot lose. Impossible. That's what's needed. That essential faith is what's needed for you to take in the meat of the Word. And that's why it's so tempting for believers to remain little babies. Being spoon-fed. Being patted on the popo when they hurt. Because when you hurt, you don't think about anybody but yourself. Those who are strong have had their senses exercised, you said. What does that mean? They have had experience Experience and suffering and getting through it. 
In fact, the word experience is used by Paul in Romans chapter 5 means having been tested, tried, and found approved. You see, they've had experience. That's why they're growing up. So Paul had a problem here. Well, the writer of Hebrews had a problem here saying, you know, I've got a lot to tell you about this fact that you, not only is Jesus a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but you have been made a kingdom of priests after the order of Melchizedek. I've got a lot to tell you about living this life in grace as, a res- as opposed to law. But you're not ready to hear it yet because you're still freaking out over suffering. But that doesn't stop him. Look at verse 1, chapter 6. Therefore, here's a conclusion. Remember what you do when you see a therefore in the Scripture? You back up and say, what's that therefore, therefore? (laughs) And you remember that that therefore is a bridge. It's a bridge between what he just said and what he's about to say. Verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. What? Let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands, and of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. What's he talking about? He said, I know you're dull of hearing. I know you're all wrapped around the axle about your own life and suffering. I know that you're confused. I know all that. Therefore, we're going to go on. We're going to go on. We're going to go on to maturity. We're going to go on to perfection. Now, as a teacher myself, I understand what Paul's talking about. Because no matter how much you try to teach people, there are going to be those who get it and those who don't. And that has nothing to do with the teacher as much as it does God. Unless the Holy Spirit clicks a light bulb on in your mind, you're not going to get it. It's going to be just like so many words. And so Paul knows that. And he says, therefore, even though you're dull of hearing, we're going to go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation, the principles of the doctrine of Christ. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to put it in simple terms that I've used so that you all can relate to it, I'm sure. We're not going to go back through all the milk of the Word and tell you what God has done to make you a brand new person. The time is right now, you've heard it enough over and over again, you ought to know what that means. That shouldn't be an issue to you. You ought to know what God has declared to you. That you are, in fact, a brand new person in Christ. Therefore, let's go on to maturity. Now this we'll do if God permit. What does He mean by that? We'll do this as long as God leads us in it and allows us to. But then he explains this terrible warning that I've got to give you and warn you about. And in the verse that follows, 
in verse 4, he says, For it is impossible, absolutely impossible, for those who were once enlightened, the light bulb clicked on, they knew who they were, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, they've experienced the Holy Spirit coming into their life bringing Jesus into their hearts, so to speak. They've experienced that. And they were born again. And were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit led them. Comforted them. And have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of of the world to come. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about us. He's talking about believers. He's talking to people that have been born again. He's talking about people that have experienced it. He says it's impossible for those people if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. What's he telling us here? I know there's a lot of commentators and a lot of Bible scholars that will tell you, look, what he's saying is if you fall away after you become a believer, it's too late, man, you're done. It's impossible to renew you again in repentance. You can't be saved again. And so you're going to hell. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying it's impossible to renew you to repentance. Why? Because you are continually crucifying to yourself the Son of God afresh. Now what does that sound like? You are in the same mentality that the multitude was when they cried out, Crucify Him! You say, I don't do that. You know, I've never said that. Oh, yeah? Let me beg to differ. When, in the course of your life, you are engaged in tremendous suffering of one sort or another. Let's just put it you know, down to the basic here kind of thing that we all worry about. Money. When you're running short on money, you don't know how you're going to pay the rent. You don't know how you're going to pay your mortgage. You don't know how you're going to buy food. You don't know how you're going to buy gas. You don't know how you're going to take care of your family. And you're suffering. You get down to money. And the Spirit, the Comforter, actually reminds you to take no thought. Don't be anxious and don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, etc. And the Spirit tries to comfort you in that. What's going on in your mind is I'll be okay. I put it in the alpha series. I'll be worthy. Or 
I'll be secure if I get more money. I'll be important if I got more money. That lie is going through your mind in that time of suffering. It's going through over and over, repeated over and over again. Right now, I'm not worthy. Right now, I'm insecure. Right now, I'm not important. But I will be secure and significant. I will be worthy if I get more money. That thinking, which is natural and normal thinking, especially in hard times, that thinking is the same thing as saying to Jesus, I don't care what you've done for me to make me worthy. I don't care what you sacrificed on the cross to make me secure in your love and significant in your plan. I don't care about that. I'll be worthy if I get more money. That's crucifying to yourself the Son of God afresh. Now he says, when you're in that mentality, you also are putting him to an open shame. Well, how am I putting him to an open shame? Because of who of God has made me to be in Christ. When I fall into that self-centered whining, thinking I need something other than Christ to make me okay, I act like a fool. I talk trash. Not loving anybody, caring about anybody except myself. And yet I'm supposed to be like Christ. Putting Him to an open shame. Now what's Paul say about this? He says it's impossible to renew you again to repentance. You can't do it. I want you to take heart here. It's impossible for man to renew you to repentance. It's impossible for me to change your thinking. When you are bent on crucifying to yourself the Son of God afresh because you're not believing who He said He made you to be and what He's done for you, I can't change your thinking. It's impossible for me to renew you again under repentance. That's what Paul's saying here. But what's impossible with me is possible with God. Because all things are possible with Him. Thankfully, those little baby Christians who are crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh because of their suffering can in fact be raised up by the One who created them in the first place. So the author goes on, I'm going to close here for today, with this one statement of hope. The author goes on to say, after he gives us a little illustration of the earth which drinks in the grace of God, rain, but produces thorns and thistles rather than fruit needs to be burned. We'll come back to that later. But this is the verse I want to leave you with. Verse 9. 
But beloved, I love you. You're beloved. Not just by me, but by God. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though thus we speak. Even though it's hard, even though our language is hard, even though the warning is severe, we're persuaded of better things. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. You see, falling away, we'll come back to and review in our next study, but falling away is a, is a falling away in your mind. It's a falling away of the attitude. Falling away from what? Falling away from the lifestyle of grace after the order of Melchizedek. Back into the lifestyle of law after the order of the Levitical priesthood. Falling away is falling away from a lifestyle of grace and truth given by Jesus back unto law and lies, which is a natural human condition. See, believers don't always think like believers. And therefore, they don't always act like believers. What Paul is telling us and what the writer of Hebrews is telling us in many places is time to grow up. Get away from those legalistic roots to realize a new lifestyle of grace. And by the way, the epitome of that new lifestyle of grace is you're actually able to love someone besides yourself. That's the epitome. That's why you're here. Let's pray. Father God, as we come into your presence, I thank you. And I praise you for all the work that you've done for us in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves. I thank you, Father, for teaching us through your Spirit as only you can do. I thank you for this warning that you give us, the dangers of falling away from your grace, falling away from your provisions, trusting our own provisions. We ask you, Father, to make this real to us now. I ask you to continue to teach us. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and for his sake. Amen.